invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of John, John chapter 8, John chapter 8, and we're going to look there at verse 12, it's a very well-known scripture, John chapter 8 and verse 12, the Bible says, Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness. I had a incident a couple of months back. It was around two o'clock in the morning. And it's, of course, it was completely dark. And I needed to get out of bed. Now the light switch was right there beside my, the head, the, the bed head, but I chose not to flick it on. I figured I knew my way around the house especially in my bedroom. I even know how many steps it takes to get from my from the side of my bed to the door. And many times I've done it with my eyes closed. However, there was a, a fan on a stand at the end of the bed and I walked straight into it, uh, picked it up, made a heck of a noise. It's a wonder Alicia didn't wake up. And, uh, and I realized that you know, things in the dark, you, you don't see things in the dark really as they are. They, you know, you, you think you're okay when you're not okay. You think you're fine when you're not really fine at all. Had I turned the light on, it would have revealed to me that the, the, the fan at the corner of my bed or at the end of the bed, I would have seen it and uh, could have saved myself the hassle. And it, and it just goes to show that <clears throat> when you're walking in darkness, and I know that we've all done that, We've, we've tried to find our way in the dark. We know that walking in the dark will pose a challenge. Always has, always will. It always will. Notice the Bible says in verse 12, Then spoke Jesus again unto them. Who were, who were them? And, and it implies that Jesus had been speaking to these people, whoever they were, was interrupted by someone or something before he turned to them again and continued speaking to these people. Well, to understand that, we need to back it up. In fact, we back it up uh, into the previous chapter, chapter 7, John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, you will find that the city of Jerusalem was filled with people, filled with Jews. They had come from all over the place, all over Judea. Judea. They had travelled down from Nazareth. They had travelled from outer towns. Why? Because that week was the week of what they called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was, according to the Jews, it was just called the Feast. And this Feast of Tabernacles went for seven days. The eighth day was a Sabbath, not the Sabbath. It was a ceremonial Sabbath. And they celebrated day in and day out on this Feast of Tabernacles. And it was there. It was there where, where the priest, on the great and last day, the eighth day, he would go down and he would take a bucket of water out of the pool of Siloam, take it back to the temple, and there he would offer it before God, before the Lord. And it had a twofold symbolic meaning. One, it was, it was to celebrate or commemorate the, the, the water that had been struck uh, in the rock from Moses out there in the wilderness. 
It was to remind them that God had provided for them. And in fact, the Feast of Weeks was a reminder of what God had done for Israel throughout the the, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so the priest bringing in the bucket of water commemorated the, the, the water that came from the rock, but it also was symbolic of the sacred rock, that being the temple, the temple, the sacred temple. And, and it was, it was meanings was to, uh, symbolize the blessings to not only Israel, but to the entire world. And it was at that point in time that Jesus stood up and he says there in verse 37, chapter seven and verse 37, he says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That sparked a reaction from the leaders. And even Jesus says, as the scripture has said, they immediately remembered Isaiah chapter 55, verse one to three, and where, where uh, the living waters was referring to God himself. Who did this man think he was? This chippy from Nazareth, this 30 year old. Who did he think he was? Did he, is he claiming to be God? And from that moment onwards, as moments before, they set to kill Jesus. They were angry. The problem was, as I already mentioned, that the temple was filled with people. There were people that said, maybe this guy, he sounds like he's a prophet. And they believed that Jesus was a genuine prophet. Others weren't so sure, but the leaders had made up their mind. They said, we won't have this man. We want him killed. But they couldn't lay a hand on him. It was too full. It was too packed. It was not the right time. In fact, in verse 30, the Bible says that God's hour, the the hour for Jesus had not yet come. So they couldn't lay a hand on him, even if they tried. In verse 53, The end of the day had come that last great day and the Bible says that every man went unto his house. End of round one, beginning of round two, chapter eight, verse one, the Bible says, and Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Jesus went or he retired to the Mount of Olives. The question is, where was the Mount of Olives? Where was the Mount of Olives? And why, why the Mount of Olives? The Bible says that every man went unto his house. Perhaps this is where the home of Jesus was. As we know, the Mount of Olives was a place where Jesus had spent many times and many nights in in entire prayer speaking with his father. Maybe Jesus felt at home in the Mount of Olives. This was the place where he could stand and he could see God's beloved people in the city of God's beloved city, Jerusalem. This was a place where God had had spent uh, time teaching his disciples how to pray. This was the this was the mount. This was the spot where Jesus ascended back into the heavens and that is the spot where Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with the city of Jerusalem filled with the redeemed where he will touch with his beautiful feet the mount of olives part into a great plain and that's where the city of Jerusalem will rest according to Zechariah 14 verse 4. This is where Jesus went. Mount of Olives, 
I stood on the Mount of Olives. It's hardly a mount. It's what I would consider a hill with three peaks facing Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives, I didn't really see any mount. uh, Oh, I saw the hill, but I didn't really see any olive trees. Back in the days of Jesus, it was filled with olive groves. Today, one side of that mountain facing Jerusalem is filled with graves. And people who have been buried there for over 2,000, 3,000 years. Jesus retired to the Mount of Olives after a long day to spend time with his father. Where do we retire at the end of a long day? Perhaps some of us retire to the pub. Others will retire to the cafe. Others will retire to the movies or, or, or to their computer games. Some will retire to the sport. Some retire to their affairs, not with their wives, nor with their husbands. But very seldom do we retire to spend time with our Father in heaven. Verse 2, the Bible says, And early in the morning he came again unto the temple. Where was the temple? Where was the temple? Was the temple in a place where the name of Jehovah had never been spoken before? Where was the temple? Perhaps it was in a region of Palestine where, where, where the miracles of Jesus had never been witnessed, where his voice had never been heard. Where was the temple? The Bible says the temple was there. It was there, right there in all sight for Jerusalem to see. It was in the midst of the city of David. It was in the midst of the city of God. It was where kings of Judea had had prayed to the God of Jehovah. It was there where there was daily sacrifices practiced. It was there where the, 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 the day of atonement was practiced every year, once a year. For the blotting out of sins, that was contrary against us. That was, that, that, that was prepared for the forerunner of Jesus Christ. The Messiah who was going to be nailed to the cross on Calvary. Calvary was just a stone's throw away from the temple. And it's there that Jesus went to the temple. Something caught my eye. The Bible says that he went early. He went early. I couldn't help but notice the time of day that Jesus went down to the temple. It was early in the morning. But what impresses me more is that all the people, the Bible says in verse 2, came down to the temple to be taught of Jesus. Now that's impressive. Early in the morning, these folk, they didn't choose to sleep in. They didn't look at the sundial watches and realize that the sun wasn't up yet and say, praise God, I've got another hour or two to sleep in. They didn't do that. What it implies to me, what it suggests to me is that these folk were hungry for the word. They got up early. They got on their clothes. They went down early to the temple, eager for truth, seeking Christ. Oh, for more early risers on Sabbath morning. Amen where we come down eager for the truth, seeking Christ. Christ is here today as he was back there 2,000 years ago. Christ will come here early. And, 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 and the bargain that he's given to us, he knows, he understands that we go working, we get up at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. He knows that we got to go to our working day and we start very, very early. But he's given us a pretty good deal. He says, you know what? On the rest day, the Sabbath day, I'm going to start church at 9.30, in some cases, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm going to be here to meet the people. 
And I will say, it's, it's sad to say this, but generally speaking, across, across the Christian church, when it comes to, to the 9.30 start, for Sabbath school to start, less than 10% are turning up from, compared to the congregation that will turn up for service. And Jesus says, where are my sheep? It was peaceful. You can just think about the early morning. The birds were singing. It's very tranquil, peaceful, and, and all the people have arrived. And Jesus sits down to teach and educate these people who were seekers of truth. When all of a sudden, he's interrupted there in verse 3, where the scribes and the Pharisees, the Bible says... They bring in a woman taken in adultery and they had set her in the midst. They'd set her in the midst. It's a terrible thing for a sinner to fall in the hands of his fellow sinners. It's a popular story of some 2,000 years. There are people out there who, who, who hardly even read the Bible, but they know of this incident. There are museums in Europe, great museums in Europe, who have at least one portrait of this incident. It is a well-known story throughout the Christian world. And this woman, she's brought down to the temple, terror-stricken, Concerned for her life now. She knew she had done wrong. There was no way out of this trap. And I know that she was betrothed or in our days or our language today, we know that this woman, she was engaged to be married. Why do I say that? Because if, if a woman that was engaged or betrothed to be married was caught in adultery, then she was to be stoned. The Bible says in our story here today that this woman was going to be stoned. If she was a married woman, if she was a married woman, then she would be strangled. And if she was the daughter of a priest, then she was going to be burned alive. This woman had been caught having an intimate relationship with somebody that was not engaged to be her husband. Now she was in trouble with the law. God calls it adultery. We call it an affair. God calls it sin. We call it multi-friendly today. It destroys the marriage vows. It breaks the trust. It breaks the love. It breaks the unity of the home. It is a sin just as much today as it was back there 2,000 years ago. And this woman knew 
that she was in trouble. And, 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 and if that wasn't embarrassing enough, she was dragged down to the temple and made to stand in the midst, in the midst of what? In the midst of all those people, those churchgoers that had come down to listen to Jesus. Could you imagine if you were caught in adultery today and the elders and the pastor catch you and, and, and they drag you straight down here to New Hope and they tell you and they set you in amongst the midst of all you folk and say, this person has been caught in adultery. How would you feel? And this woman, she had not only been exposed physically, she was humiliated, but also she had now been exposed or her true spiritual condition had just been exposed. She was ashamed of herself. She was ashamed of herself. And it is a shameful thing when it is a sin of the heart. It is a shameful thing when it is a sin of the flesh. It is a shameful thing when it is committed in the open. And it is a shameful thing when it is committed in secret. And it reminds me of the words of Darren Hinch, that radio and TV personality. Remember years ago? He says, shame, shame, shame. Who were these men? Who were these scribes and these Pharisees? Well, they were men of the law. The scribes, that's why they were called scribes. They scribed the Bible. They scribed the first five books of Moses. That was the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they were well versed in the law. In fact, if you wanted to be a rabbi by the age of 14, You had to memorize word for word the first five books of the Bible. Now that's pretty impressive. I'll give it to them. So these scribes, the writers of the law, these Pharisees, the religious teachers of the law, had this woman and she knew she was in big trouble. If you wanted to know any laws of Moses, you would bypass and walk past anybody and everybody just to go and speak to these guys who who showed the outward, moral, high standards of the day. It was these guys that caught this woman and she was condemned. And, and, And they were right. She had committed this grievous sin. She had broken the part of the laws of Moses that, that, that spoke about this. We know in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22. Do we have it up there? Deuteronomy 22 verse 22. If a man, this is part of the laws of Moses. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. That came from God himself through Moses. He wrote it there and now I have a question. And the question is, it's a very crucial question. If these guys were so good with the law, where was the man? Yeah, I thought I'd get an amen from the women. Where was the man? Don't sit there and tell me that somehow they managed to catch the woman and the man just escaped. That didn't happen. That wouldn't happen. They wouldn't let that happen. Where was the man? It seems to me, it seems to me that this was a setup. It implies that they had used somebody to seduce this woman so they could catch her in the act. My other question is, what were these elders and pastors doing in a place like that? Thought they would have been at home 
studying their Bible or out on visitations, having family worship. But no, they were down there. And this, this, this was capital punishment. I mean, if you get caught with this, it was capital punishment. So you couldn't say that, well, you know what? I'm a witness to this. And she, I saw her walk in and I saw them walk on out. No, you had to catch them in the act. That was the way you had to be a witness. The Bible says that. Seems to me something fishy was going on here. There was something more sinister to this, to this, to this incident than meets the eye. Why expose her publicly? They didn't need to do that. They hated the guts of Jesus. They did. It was just the day before they wanted to kill him. And now they're coming back and saying, and they're taking this woman to Jesus. Why? It's because they didn't care about her. They wanted to humiliate her and they wanted to, 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 to discredit him. Such was their hatred for Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 5, the Bible says, these guys come in and uh, they say unto him in verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands us that such should be such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. The woman was trapped. The law condemned her. The people that were sitting there listening to Jesus, watching what was going on in their minds, they would have known that she was a condemned woman. She, legally, she didn't have a leg to stand on. And of all the people that had to catch her, it was the law, the scribes, and the Pharisees. It's interesting to note the Bible says in verse 3, that the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman. You know, I love it when you hear a story or a testimony of somebody that had been brought to Jesus. Somebody that has been led to Jesus. These guys brought a woman to Jesus. But you can tell that they were not interested bringing her to see that she changes her ways. That's not, that wasn't their intentions. These guys, they were arrogant, they were rude, they were cunning, they were calculating. They had no regard for this woman and they were trying, the Bible says that they came tempting him, Jesus, accusing him that they may accuse him. They were trying to trap Jesus. So here is this woman, she's been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses condemns that. And now they bring her to Jesus and say, you know what? The Lord Moses says that she should be saying, what do you say? What do you say? What was their intentions? What were their motives? You see, my friends, if you ever bring somebody to Jesus with the wrong motives, with evil intentions, don't ever do it. It will bring you undone. It will bring you undone. And these guys were about to come undone, unbeknown to them. Oh, they brought it to Jesus. They thought they had Jesus trapped. They say, what are you going to do, Master? And isn't that interesting? You know, if it was some ordinary teacher, 
if it was some ordinary teacher, maybe they would have got away with it, but they were dealing with the master. And so they bring this woman to Jesus. What they didn't realize, and they should have, was that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was notorious for hanging out with sinners. And Jesus was not concerned about his reputation of hanging out with the wrong people. He was not concerned with that at all. What he was more concerned with was people's salvation. And so they bring this woman in. And what does Jesus do? We know that they brought this woman to Jesus. And Jesus, why bring him to Jesus? Jesus was the one that forgives. Jesus is the one that gives you grace. Jesus is the one that offers you salvation. But they had something a little more sinister than that. And so they bring her to Jesus. What was Jesus to do? You see, the question is, they came and tempted him so that they may accuse him. Based on what? Well, if Jesus said, listen, let the woman go, that then would have put him in, in, in trouble with the law of Moses. That was a capital offense, and they knew it. They said, if, if Jesus is lenient on this woman, and lets her go, then we can have him stoned. We can have him killed because it's a capital crime. It's a capital, uh, what would you say? It's a sin against going against the law of Moses. If he had said, stoner, that's what the law of Moses says, stoner. If he had said that, he would have gone against the Roman authorities. They knew it. Nobody was allowed to carry out any killing or execution unless it was through Roman authorities. Why is it that they brought Jesus to Rome in the first place or to authorities to have him crucified? They couldn't do it themselves. And so they thought if he goes one way, he'll be condemned through the law of Moses. If he takes it another, he'll be condemned through the, to the, through the authorities of Rome. So what does he do? There the Bible says, but in verse six, but Jesus stooped down. And with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. I want to just say at this point in time, Jesus does love you. And you know, here is grace coming into it. Here he was, he was about to stand down for this woman. It's because he loves us and it's because he cares for us. And he will stand in defense of any sinner that is standing before Jesus Christ. He's done it back then and he's doing it right now. The Bible says that he wrote with his finger. And the question is, the question is, what did he write? (laughs) If you ever wondered that, what did Jesus write? There are three places in the Bible where where I know uh, Jesus or God wrote with his finger. One was on the Ten Commandments. The second was on the wall of Belshazzar, the, 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 the Babylonian palace. And the third was here in this incident. And, and, and I noticed, I couldn't help but notice through a study of these, these three periods that it was, or these three incidents, that, that it, it was law and judgment connected together. When you have the Ten Commandments, that's the, that's the law. And what is, what is James chapter 2 verse 12 says? That we will be judged by the law. So there's law and judgment. You come over to the, uh, to the Babylonian walls where they saw the, the writing on the walls. He gets Daniel the prophet to come and explain it to King Belshazzar and he says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. It was judgment and it was law. He was killed that very night. Then we come here where Jesus himself, these guys, the scribes and Pharisees, they thought they were the law, but they, they, they had no clue who they 
were dealing with. He was the master because he was the law. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law. So when he wrote with the end of his finger, he was writing the law down. It's funny because the Bible says he stood down. He stood down. And he was very silent. The Bible says that he didn't, he pretended he didn't even hear them. Pretended he didn't even hear them. He knew that he had them. He knew that he was going to bring them under. He knew that, that, that these guys weren't going to have a leg to stand on. He knew that. And isn't it human nature or is it just me? Sometimes, you know, when you're growing up and somebody's giving you a hard time and they're, they're, they're ramming it down your ears and they're, they're, they're telling everybody uh, bad things about you and, and want to give you a real hard time. And sometimes you can't help but notice that when they get a hard time, when they come undone, you sort of sit back and you're thinking, well, well, was, well they, they got what they deserved. <laughs> Actually, the Bible does say that, doesn't it? You know, you reap what you sow, Okay. So what you're sowing out there, friends, whatever it is, you will reap. That's what the Bible says. But here, Jesus pretends he doesn't even hear them. He knew he could nail them. He knew he could have them. But he didn't. He didn't wait for, he didn't wait for the media to turn up. He didn't go around and, and, and post things around telegraph poles. He didn't even write anything in ink. In fact, he wrote on the ground in the dirt. It was only a matter of a few minutes before the wind would come, I guess, or somebody would trample over and that would be a race forever. Such was his grace and his mercy on these guys. He descended that day, my friends. He descended from heaven to earth. He descended below the crowds. The Bible says that when he came to the temple, he sat. Now he stood and he's going down even further than when he sat and he stooped down and wrote on the, on the ground. He stooped or he descended lower than the crowds. He, he descended lower than the scribes and the Pharisees. He even descended lower than this adulterous woman. Hmm. He stooped, my friends. The Bible says he stooped. Well, I guess in his ministry, he had been done a lot of stooping. As I mentioned, he stooped from heaven to earth. He stooped when Peter was sinking in the waters. He stooped when he embraced young children. He stooped in the garden of Gethsemane. Yes, Jesus did a lot of stooping. And on this day, he stooped for this woman. And the Bible says there in verse 7, so they continued asking him, he lifted himself and he said unto him, here the Bible says he lifted himself up. Not only did he stoop down for this woman, but he stood up for her too. He stood up for her, he defended this woman. And what does he say? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now the question is, who were the first that were able to cast a stone at this woman? Notice what the Bible says uh, in Deuteronomy 17. Do we have Deuteronomy 17 there? I can't tell me. All right, Deuteronomy 17. Once again, we're back in the laws of Moses. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of what? Two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Verse 7. The hands of the witnesses. You notice that? The hands of the witnesses shall be the what? The first. So Jesus says, he who is first. In other words, if you were the first witnesses, if you were the first two or three witnesses, you will be the first to cast that stone. 
But Jesus had a way with words. He had a way to reach their heart, didn't he? Because he also reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 19, if we got that there, Deuteronomy chapter 19, he says, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against of him wrongdoing, next verse, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, next. And the judges shall make careful inquiry and indeed if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So in other words, what Jesus was saying, before you cast that first stone, have a good look in the mirror. Have a good look in the mirror. And if you are here on false pretenses, if you are here to, 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 uh, to be dishonest, if you are here and, and you're not here uh, on, a, on a moral obligation, then you be careful to cast that first stone. Now, I don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt that day, but what I do know is this is that whatever it was, he brought conviction and reproof that day. Notice what the Bible says in verse 9. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. You see, Jesus has a way of reaching hearts. And he, he, he reached their hearts that day. They went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And here, for the first time, Jesus was standing face to face with, 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 the, with the woman. My friends, salvation came to this woman that day because she stood and she met Jesus. My friends... Every one of us are going to have to meet Jesus one day. We will either meet him before the first death or we will meet him at the second death. Either way, we will meet Jesus face to face. Every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow, the Bible says. Make sure that you meet Jesus this side of death. This woman, she met Jesus. The accusers had left, and she was left standing in the midst. Story teaches us that no sinner is too far away from Jesus Christ. Amen. It teaches us that his grace is not, 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 not too shallow. It is deep enough to grab us. His mercy is there for us. It doesn't matter how far we've gone into sin. It doesn't matter how many dark secrets we've gone. It, it makes no difference or makes no, no it, it, there's no matter of, of how long you have been walking in darkness. Jesus is there to meet you and he is prete- prepared to stoop for you and he is also prepared to stand for you. The problem with us is that we are not willing to admit our sins. I have to, I have to credit these guys. When they walked and they dropped their stones that day, not one stone was cast. When they walked, they left. At least they saw themselves for who they really are. Perhaps Jesus wrote in the dirt and said, Sam, you've committed adultery. Jerry, you've committed murder. Harry, 
You've committed, you, you've coveted the neighbor's wife. Maybe it was specific sins and the spirit of prophecy says that Jesus wrote their specific sins. But they left, they saw themselves for who they really were. It's one of the hardest things for us as human beings to do is to see ourselves for who we really are. Verse 10. When Jesus had lifted himself up and he saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? In other words, woman, where are those first two or three witnesses? Where are the ones that caught you in the act? Where are they? Where are the ones that are going to cast that first stone? And how does she respond? She says, No man, sir, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Now he wasn't condoning uh, 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 what she had done was right. Nor was he telling her to go and just never ever sin again. She had a problem with that particular sin. And it was that particular sin that Jesus says, get away from it. Don't do it again. Walk away from it. Change your habits. Change your lifestyle. Yes, you're going to trip up here and there, even though you want to serve me. You're going to trip up here and there. You're going to fall. You might even repeat the same sins from time to time. Praise God in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. What did he say? If we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who will pick us up. There he will stoop for us. There he will stand for us. There he will defend us. Now that's not to say we just keep on sinning until Jesus comes. There is a day of reckoning, my friends. There is a day where we have to be. That's why Revelation says to the overcomer, to the overcomer, to the overcomer over and over again. We need to overcome. If we're to sit there and say that we have no power to to, to give up our sins, what we're really saying is that the devil, the originator of sin, has more power than Jesus Christ. This woman looked to Jesus in faith. Woman, symbolic of a church, isn't it? You know, I want to say this before I wrap up. I want us to say this. The woman in Bible prophecy is symbolic of church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, 23, clearly tells us that. Sometimes people want to stand outside the church, pick up stones and cast it at the church, at the woman. Now, I know church stinks sometimes. It smells a bit. Somebody already said that we're full of sinners. This is a hospital for sinners, not for saints. Sometimes we have issues with ourselves or amongst each other. But I remember a good evangelist friend of mine said, church is like Noah's ark. Noah and his family were on board that ark and it was filled with animals. Could you imagine the stench and the stink that that produced over a 12-month, two-year period? Could you imagine just how? It would almost make you want to get out of of that one window, I think, that was put in the ark and jump overboard. But if you did, you'd drown. So stay on the boat and put up with the smell. And it's a little bit like that with church. If you can't handle the smell, come to church with a peg on your nose. But don't jump overboard because you will drown. You will drown with the world, my friends. It is still the apple of God's eye. That's why he's coming back. That's why he wants to unite the church. In fact, my service next week will be on church unity. 
Why was Jesus able to forgive this woman? Why was he able to offer grace and salvation? It's because he stooped, friends. He stooped when he was spat on. He stooped when he had the crown of thorns placed on his head. He stooped when he was nailed to the cross. He stooped when he was put three days into the tomb. But praise God, after the third day, he stood. And he stood and when he stood, he conquered death. When he stood, he conquered the grave. When he stood, he conquered sin. When he stood, he conquered the devil. And I'm going to say that word that Pastor Lloyd loves saying that I've seen in the last few months. Hallelujah. We serve a God that stoops and stands. Verse 12. Then spoke Jesus again unto them saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We have just seen a story of a woman who was walking in darkness, but then she saw the light of the world. Why did Jesus say that? Where was he? He was in the temple. What part of the temple? He was in the, the part of the temple where it was called the court of women. Now, this was Herod's temple at that time. You had the, 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 the holy place, the most holy place, but there was a court that was called the court of women. There it had 13 funnel-like uh, treasuries. And this is, remember the woman with the two mites? She came in and she put her two mites in. That was where she put those mites. That's where Jesus was standing uh, or sitting, de- uh, dealing with this incident with this woman. This is where the people came to hear Jesus. But it was there where they had these massive four big oil lanterns that the priests would light up for the entire eight days of the, 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 the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was there that Jesus stood in front of those, those candles and said, I am the light of the world. The light of the world. Global language, universal language is the word world. It reminds me of the sun. And the earth, the, ter- the earth turns. You and I are like the earth that turns on its axis. Now the sun shines 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year long, all century long. It shines, shines, shines. But there comes a time where the earth does not shine from the sun. Why? Because it's turned its back on it. And that's you and I, friends. The only time we don't have sun shining in our lives, the sun of righteousness, the sun of God, is because we have turned our axis around and we are walking in darkness. What will it take to get that light back? Jesus has the answer. He says, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. How serious are you, my friends, in following Jesus Christ? How serious are you and I in following Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Saviour? When when Jesus bade the disciples to follow him, they dropped their nets and they immediately obeyed. My appeal to you today is simply this. What are you willing to draw in order to become a serious follower of Jesus Christ? How many dark secrets are we carrying that hinders us to see ourselves as we really are? According to the Scriptures, Jesus says, or Jesus is the only one who can remove the darkness from our life. And if you are walking in the light, praise God. If you want to walk in the light, but you're not sure how, then here's what you do. 
Do what the woman did, my friends. Stand face to face with the light of life and extinguish your darkness forever. <laughs> 